Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The first time most of us saw my guest on today's show, he was an awkward teenager just trying to make sense of his very dysfunctional family. I can't believe you didn't recognize me. We never see you. Never see anybody in our family. I know, it's our parents' fault. We should teach them a lesson. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. I should go to my mom tonight and be like, I met the cutest guy, and then she'll see you and me totally making out. <laughs> but not really, right? It's perfect. She'd freak out, and I'd be like, Mom, if we saw each other more often, this wouldn't happen. But we're cousins. That's what makes it funny. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Michael Sarah as George Michael from the pilot of Arrested Development, which, believe it or not, premiered on Fox almost 20 years ago. That beloved show made Michael a huge star very young and led to a massive film career that kicked off with the box office hit Superbad. And despite what he tries to tell me in this interview, the Best Picture nominee Juno in quick succession. In the 15 years since those movies came out, Michael seemed to deliberately scale things way back, focusing on smaller indie films and theater, along with a high-profile return to the Netflix reboot of Arrested Development, on which he also served as a writer. So his latest role as the romantic lead opposite Amy Schumer in her new show Life and Beth, streaming now on Hulu, feels like a pretty big deal. And I can tell you that he is phenomenal in the show, playing a lightly veiled version of the comedian's real-life, on-the-spectrum husband. We get into all of it on today's show, so I am really excited for you to listen. Here's my conversation with Michael Sarah. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, and I, I feel like you don't do a ton of uh, interviews and press, so uh, it's exciting to have you on the podcast. I guess that, well, no, I, I mean, I guess I... Uh, do you feel like you do? I haven't had really... <laughs> Anything to promote in like a couple of years. I mean, I've just been sitting inside my house for a couple of years with nothing to talk about, but no anecdotes. No anecdotes. Yeah. No. Well, now you you definitely have something to promote because you have this new show, uh, Life and Beth, um, which I have to tell you, I was I was I've seen the whole thing. I really really enjoyed it, and I was enjoying the at the beginning, but then I felt like it really just kicked into a, a new gear when your character comes in and the relationship between your character and, and Amy Schumer's character. Um, I just thought it was, it was really great. Uh, so let's kind of start with the beginning of this project. Um, you know, how did you get involved? Did you know Amy before you did this or, or how did that happen? I didn't really know. I mean, I met Amy one time at uh, this event that we were both at like a couple of years ago and, uh, and we, we exchanged numbers there. Um, and Amy sent me a text later that night saying, Hey, you know, it was like a bunch of her friends were going out to sing karaoke or some, something like that. And she invited me. And, um, but the thing is, I like left town that I actually left the country that night. And so my phone wasn't working. And then when I like landed back here, I saw a couple text messages from a number I didn't recognize or didn't have saved. So I just never answered her. And then, um, like when this show came about, she reached out to me for it and she was like, well, how come you never responded to me before? 
And I was like, what do you mean? I've never, I've never even, I've never gotten a text from you. And I just complete, like, I don't know. I just, we just didn't connect that one time, but it kind of worked out perfectly because that she reached out to me for this and um, just out of the, out of, out of the blue. I mean, and you know, I, I didn't have any concept that she was writing this show or anything or that it was coming together. And suddenly she's like, here's these 10 scripts. And I got to read the whole series and I just loved it. You know I mean? It was so nice. It was such a nice world and really nice writing and, and really nice characters. And I was completely interested in continuing reading it, which is already a good sign. And I mean, to be honest, like, you know, when you read a script or something in, in terms of considering it for something to, you know, become a part of, you, you, you know, like you can really kind of get a sense in the first like five, 10 pages, what, uh, what the intentions are or something of the, of the, of the project and like, you know, and, and in the writing and, it was just really straightforward writing. It was really simple. It was fun. It was very light. And it like the dialogue felt really lived in and natural. And nothing felt very forced about it. And it was just refreshing. And, and it was a really good read. So I was already excited about it. And then I really love the idea of working with Amy and doing things with Amy and getting to play that dynamic out with her. I thought it would really go well, you know the two of us together. And so I was, it was just, yeah, it was a gift for me. It came out of nowhere and I just got to say yes and go do it basically. Yeah. I mean, the dynamic between the two of you in the show is so interesting and, you know, you're not playing her husband, but I think anyone who's seen her stand up or, you know, knows anything about her relationship with her husband knows that yeah. there are similarities there. Chris, yeah, there are similarities. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's, you know, uh, like a one-to-one, you know, stamp of him by any means, just like it's not, Amy's character is not is not Amy, although there's like a lot of it is. Um, but I mean, Chris is a hilarious person to just uh, be able to model anything off of. And my favorite thing about him that I hope we get to explore a little more in the next season is how fiercely competitive he is. And um, I love that. I mean, I, I'm a sucker for people who are competitive. Like I always am like, we'll become fast friends because, uh, you know, I, I, I find a lot of people have weird feelings about competitive gaming or something but i love it i love people who get like really into a tennis match or something me and chris played tennis and uh we actually tied oh wow but i made an amazing comeback because he (laughs) had me like five games to one or something and i came back and it was like 95 degrees and we were both dying by the end of it like really trying to win but it was good that it ended in a tie we both kept our dignity had a really good match and then i could hardly walk afterwards (laughs) So. Did you did you use that time getting to know him to kind of get some insight into this character that you were playing? I mean, you know, the character was very alive on the page already. Um, I could completely see the guy just based on the writing. And I think the character was very, you know, because there are aspects of Chris in the character, Amy knew the character inside out and and had so much love for the character, too. So anytime I had any kind of question about the character or anything, Amy had a ready answer and that was full of love. and. Or even like if I was, if we were on set and I was like, I want to say something, you know, I just wanted a quick line to kind of fill in a gap or something like, oh, what can I say about this? Or like at the beginning of a scene or anything, Amy would have something that was so dialed into the voice of the character, like just ready. And so it was very, it was very useful in that way. But I mean, yeah, I mean, no, I didn't really, I didn't model anything off of Chris as a human being, to be honest, other than what's in, what's in him that's on the page, you know, which is which is maybe a lot. Maybe I think a lot of the things I say are things that he has said before or, or some amount of, of the situations are from real life. But Hello? John? Is there a John in here? 
sorry. Um, whose blood is that? What? Are you John, the groundskeeper? Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. I I'm supposed to ask you for a tour. Why can't Gerald do it? He was busy. I'm also busy. Yeah, I I'm sorry. I don't know. I'm just trying to do my job. You say sorry a lot. Do I? So, do you think you could take me? Yeah, okay. It's not directly addressed in the show, and maybe it's something that if there's more, you get to do more of it, it will be. Um, but, you know, it seems like he is, this character is on the autism spectrum, and that's, you know, something that, um, you know, Chris deals with. Yeah. What did yeah. you, what did you need to, you know, know or be able to to play him authentically and play that aspect of him authentically and was that something that you you know had any concerns about going in or well i assume you're talking about sort of like uh moments where john uh the character is like sort of socially unfiltered or something or mm -hmm. or, or, mm -hmm. or un just the, the way he reacts to certain situations or maybe not how most people would react yeah he is f perfectly comfortable reacting in a way that will set off a little social bomb. And that's kind of the aspect of him. That's uh, a challenge for Beth, but yeah, that was basically, I don't know. To me, it was just those situations. I mean, I completely know this character. I mean, I think reading the script and reading this part, it was, it's so familiar to me. Um, and it reminded me of kind of several people in my life and, and aspects of myself. And I mean, in certain moments and things and, so that was, I don't know, just, you know, understanding him, understanding the character was really my preparation. And um, to me, I was always very in touch with, with where, he's, where he's at and where he's coming from. There were things you could kind of relate to your own experience or your own, the way you deal with I mean, things? Not, or... Yeah, not, not exactly. But, um, you know, I mean, a lot of what uh, the story between John and Beth is about kind of the way they communicate together the challenges they have. And I think anyone who's, honestly, anyone who's been in a relationship can relate to, to that, especially over the last two years of just like living on top of each other. Um, but one of, the, one of the things that I can relate to with John is like when he gets into a kind of, sometimes he gets stuck on a sort of loop where he says something and it's like, it's the whole answer. It's like, this is the explanation. And then she'll come back with something and he just says the same thing again that he already said. Like, you just have to, digest that piece of information and then there's and then we're done talking you know and i mean that's not me really but i mean i can i don't know i can somehow understand how he um feels that way or what what the sort of short circuit that's happening there is you know i can i can relate to that yeah um so you know you this is your first tv show um you know regular role on a tv show in quite a while i think probably since um arrested yeah. development um mm -hmm. and you know now it's it, i couldn't believe when i was looking that it's almost 20 years since that show premiered yeah. on fox um it was my uh freshman year of college uh when when it came out and me and all my friends were very mm -hmm. obsessed with it at that time um wow. so I'd, I'd love to go all the way back there um you know you had been acting for for quite a while even before that even though you were you were only 14 when it started right yeah yeah I mean, a couple of years. Yeah. I started when I was about nine doing, you know, commercial auditions and, and things. And then, yeah. So how did you end up getting that, that role of, of George Michael? Did you have to audition? Did you, uh, you sent yeah. in a tape or. Yeah. Well, what, what happened? Like, I mean, a lot of things when I was growing up, I grew up outside of Toronto and there was like kind of an industry in Toronto, a lot of television movies of the week and stuff and, and all kinds of movies being shot in Toronto. 
So there were a lot of Canadian projects that shot there, but then once in a while, you know, you would get read for something that was like a US project. When you grow up in Canada, that's kind of like the big game, you know, getting flown to the States or something. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of not that easy because of all the complicated, you know, immigration stuff. You have to get a visa. It's hard to get hired, you know, because they they have to jump through a bunch of hoops to get you. But the thing that happened, well, actually what happened was I was on a TV series the year before Arrested Development called The Grubs, which was a, a Fox multi-cam sitcom. I somehow I, missed that one. Yeah, well, it never aired. <laughs> oh, it never that's aired. Right. <laughs> yeah, we did eight episodes of it. And uh, it was Randy Quaid and Carol Kane were the parents. And it was a dysfunctional family sitcom. Very straight ahead. That sounds like a very dysfunctional family. <laughs> Randy Quaid and Carol yeah. Kane. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it was funny, I think. For some reason, it got canceled after eight episodes. Like they they gathered the whole crew together and we all had this like sad <laughs> moment. And, <laughs> and for me, it was devastating, obviously, because it was like, I was very excited to be. Well, first of all, on a show that I thought was actually funny and that was like a Fox sitcom. I mean, it was kind of like, stepping into a whole other reality for me. Like I was so excited about it, but then, and anyway, I couldn't really tell you how I got that job. I sent a tape in and they just really like championed me, the the, the two executive producers and creators. And, and then anyway, the thing is that Mitch Hurwitz saw that show or saw, you know, Mitch, Mitch was right. Mitch, the creator of Arrested Development was writing on a different show. And in that writer's room, they would like at lunchtime, they would put on, you know, tapes of like pilots. I guess they had like, a, they had pilots for some reason and they would just watch a pilot every day at lunch like for their own amusement and Mitch saw me in that show and he liked me and I think he liked me for that for the George Michael character that he was maybe already writing at the time or something so I was on Mitch's radar and that kind of already helped me get the job he kind of like wanted me for it so so I got brought in and read for Arrested Development and um, got it what a long answer. <laughs> yeah, I was I was watching uh, something, an interview that Mitch Hurwitz did where he was yeah. talking about seeing you and that you just you had this, you know, very unique thing that you were doing, which was maybe not doing a lot. And he liked that. Um, and he also described George Michael as uh, devoid of personality, which I thought was funny and maybe a little harsh. Um <laughs> Is that, how you, I mean, is that how you yeah. saw the character when you when you started doing it? I never thought of it like that, really. But I mean, it's George Michael. He's so he's so much outsourcing, like how he should feel about things. It seems like yeah. he's, always, he's very unsure. Oh, yeah, he just looks at his dad and bases his opinion on <laughs> and his reaction <laughs> to things on him. It's true. He is kind of like this empty vessel. Um, you were so young, you know, as you said, you were 14 when you started doing it. Um, were there joke did you feel like you really like got the show and really you know i mean you, you said you thought it was funny but did were there things that you didn't get or things that like were kind of going over your head because you were so young do you think i think so no i think at 14 we were pretty i mean the way i remember being 14 is that you're pretty pretty with it you're pretty with it yeah and you know i don't know you're you're, you're, you're like 14 year olds i think are really into like shocking humor and everything and like really asserting their sort of entry <laughs> into adulthood you know and I don't know. I just felt so excited being around all those guys. And I felt I did feel very included in kind of the whole spirit of the show by Mitch. I mean, Mitch really was like so supportive of me. And, you know, I would get like, you know, even just doing the table read with the cast and kind of getting laughs when it came to me and Alia's scenes, like we would get, you know, the other people would laugh at us, too. And so we always felt very like supportive. It's part of what's so great about the show is that you, your character and Alia's character maybe are are so much part of it and so, you know, just yeah. as funny as as these adults, which yeah. is really great. 
Yeah, because it's like it was easy to fall into kind of like the kid part of the show or something. That was kind of trope of shows. Yeah, and it really wasn't like that. No, we had it was everybody was so supportive, and we were also such fans of each other. I mean, like it was really mind blowing to see all those guys doing their thing for the first time. Yeah, I mean, you really got thrown in with some some really really funny people, some really comedic geniuses. I mean, Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, David Cross, you know, on and on. Yeah, Um, you you know, we were we were all in the audition for for Job when Will got when Will read. Yeah, it was like for some reason the last part that was cast, and most of the cast was already was, there. Was in there, yeah, yeah and and was in there with at the, doing the audition with like a kind of rotating wheel of actors who came in and read for Job. You know, like Tony was in there. It was the first time we ever saw Tony doing Buster. Tony Hill oh, doing, wow. you know, yeah. was doing that audition. We were just like shocked by him. <laughs> and, and then Will came in though and did something totally different than every other actor that had come in that day, and it was just like, well, so what did fun. what did he do that other people weren't doing? Well, the thing that he does in the show, you know, I mean, that's what he did. It was completely fleshed out. And it, but nobody had taken that approach to the character. I mean, the character wasn't really that on the page. Was, yeah. didn't have that kind of. He like, really made it his own. Swagger. Yeah. I mean, that was just what he brought in. And we were all just like, it was just so much fun. And it was, it was so, it gave such a different balance to the whole equation that it was, felt great. You know, it's so great to be hanging out with you. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. Like, uh, were, were you ever awkward around girls? What do you mean? Like if there were three of us and I didn't know where to start? No, I think I did pretty well. <laughs> not a lot of complaints, if you know what I mean. At least, I'm from the girl. You're saying I should just be myself? And he had to drive her home, so I think I did pretty good. Pretty damn good. Hey, guy. Yes, sir. How many mice will $13 buy? I was wondering if you could share any memories about Jessica Walter, um, who, you know, passed away uh, not too long ago um, and was so brilliant on that show and in everything she does. Um, you know, when you think about your time spent with her, what what stands out? So many things. I don't know. Um, I mean, Jessica was, again, like so, so supportive of us and so sweet. I remember my mom used to like run lines with Jessica in her trailer that that was a very special thing for my mom that she became kind of the person for that. You know, Jessica would be like, Linda, come on, and <laughs> wrangle my mom into her trailer with her to run lines. Because Je- Jessica was very um, kind of old school, I guess, in her approach to scenes and to the to the work in that show. And what she would do is mark all her sides with gestures and, you know, like, and she would basically premeditate everything. And you, you would come in and rehearse the scene for with her. You know, I only had a couple of scenes that were just the two of us with her. But what happens is you walk in and she's got this whole blueprint. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to cross over here on this line. I'm going to lift the glass on this line. And so it would really throw her sometimes when we would get rewrites the morning of, which happened basically all the time on that show. And it would drive her crazy, you know. But I mean, so and it also played against everybody else's style or most other people's styles. Like Jason would come in and, you know, kind of like, like feel his way through a rehearsal without even knowing the lines yet and be kind of like saying the lines and feeling them and learning them and and be totally unprepared. And then by the time we got to shoot the scene, he would have this thing all mapped out and, and, but his looseness would be, would kind of inform the the way the scene plays out too, you know, and and his whole style. Yeah. And it makes it more, maybe more naturalistic. uh, Yeah. Some of his stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so, but you have those two styles kind of playing off each other and, you know, that, that provided a lot of the uh, interesting kind of dynamics of the scenes in that show, you know? Um, yeah, Jessica, I don't know. There's a lot of memories jumping to my mind right now that I kind of uh, can't share. 
um, <laughs> because she was very, I don't know, she really was really, uh, she was very cool and sweet with me and Alia. And we would get a lot of the real dirt from her a lot of the time. Whenever we would just get to hang out with her, she would kind of dish a bunch of shit out to us. And we would get to hear her real thoughts on things. And that was great. I mean, I loved her. She was really cool. She was really cool. And she also always came. I did a couple plays in the last few years. And she would always come and come upstairs. And we would hang out afterwards. And, yeah, she was just great. She was, like, actually a grandmother figure to you. Yeah. She was lovely. Yeah. Um, I mean, this show, you know, must have been very foundational for you in terms of, you know, forming your sense of humor and, and what you, you know, wanted to do. Did you feel at the time like you knew how big of an impact it would have, you know, both on you and on, I think, comedy in general, considering where everyone from the show has has gone? Well, when we were making the show, nobody was watching it, you know. I mean, I definitely, I really felt, and we all felt that the show was really funny, you know, and I was so proud to be a part of it. And anybody who did see it was really, you know, complimentary. But, you know, the show had a big challenge built into it, which is that it's sort of semi-serialized. So like anybody who's jumping into like the first season of the show, like 10 episodes in is kind of lost. So yeah. like, and there's a lot of sort of almost with... inside jokes or, or things. Yeah. That you need it to kind of builds on yeah. yeah. And so any, so, so it was kind of a show meant to be discovered like on DVD where people could kind of treat it like a book and start at the beginning. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, I thought that everybody was so brilliant and Mitch was like the most, brilliant guy we could have leading the show and you know i yeah i i knew that it was a great thing to be a part of no matter what happened with it and it was yeah there was a lot of pride pride working on it it was always kind of on the bubble of cancellation and then of course after the third season it did go away um how did you take that at the time and and what did you want to do next what what were your goals after that i don't know i mean well it was sad when it happened it was like very sad and and it had been a slow murder in a way, you know, like kind of felt like the writing had been on the wall for a while. I mean, like they, the first season was 22 episodes and the second season was like 18 episodes, which was already kind of like we're on probation. Yeah. Or <laughs> and then I think they only ordered like another 11 or something. Yeah. Of course, that. now 18 is like so many. That'd be great to do 18. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it felt like it had been going that way. I don't know. We were just, you know, just like just struggling in the water all the time with ratings for some reason. But um, Yeah. Um, and then after, after, I don't know, I was, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was wondering if I was going to go to school, which I didn't do. Um, and Jeffrey Tambor actually said, don't do that. Don't go to school. Oh yeah. I'm not was sure. That, where. Was that good advice? Well, it was good advice for me. I mean, he just said, just keep working, you know, and which I did do. Um, and yeah, no, I think that was the right advice for me. I mean, I don't, I don't regret that, you know, not having that school experience. And I mean, I, it was good to keep working at that time. Coming up, Michael and I travel back in time to 2007, the year that changed his life forever. And later, he talks about what it was like to return to the Bluth family as both an actor and writer so many years after Arrest Development was canceled. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our conversations with some of Michael's Arrest Development castmates, including Tony Hale and David Cross, as well as everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please do us a favor and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Michael Sarah. You had some incredible success, you know, right after Arrested Development, you know, thinking about uh, 2007 when you had these two huge movies in Superbad and Juno. Um, now, Yeah, that's basically the first thing I did after the show, actually. So. Like Arrested Development, Superbad is, is also just one of my all-time favorites. Um, you know, I feel like it is very a close uh, representation of my own high school experience, and I think probably a lot of people feel like that. Um, I wondered if you were able to relate to it because you hadn't really had some of those experiences that are depicted in the movie. And was that kind of like your, was, was that your high school was, was being in, in super bad? Well, I went to high school kind of like half of the time. Um, we would shoot Arrested Development for half of the year or something. And then I would go back to Canada and jump back into school with my friends, which was weird. Um, so, I mean, I did have a high school. And I, I, uh, I also had like a vicarious high school experience too. Like when I was not in school, I would just be, you know, I'd be with my friends doing you know, having all the social high school experience without the education aspect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I couldn't really relate to the, to the movie that much. I mean, I mean, in terms of the specific, like, you know, kind of one night thing of that movie, like this, you know, we have to get alcohol. Um, I don't know. My childhood wasn't quite like that the way I remember it, you know, it kind of a series of hangouts with friends. Sometimes you would somehow get beer. <laughs> I don't even remember how, you know, but like, <laughs> and we just sit around drinking warm beer, like Lucky Stripe beer, which was disgusting. And yeah, it was kind of its own thing, <laughs> kind of different from the movie. What do you remember about your first time meeting Jonah Hill? So funny. I remember actually meeting Jonah Hill when I was like 15 or so at Henry Winkler's birthday party. Henry Winkler was on the show on Arrested Development. And so some people from the show got invited to his, it was probably his 60th birthday or something. And that's where I met his son, Max, who's still a friend of mine to this day. And we worked on a few things together after that. And Max came over and Max was a big fan of Arrested Development. And, and, and this was when it was on TV. And, you know, that was still very, very rare for anyone to say that. And Max was cool. And we became friends, you know, that night. And Max grew up with Jonah. They went to high school together. They were best friends and they're still close friends. And Jonah was there with Max. And, um, there was also like they showed a video that night, like a bunch of people made a like a happy birthday video to Henry and various people kind of saying things. And Max and Jonah did like a bit in the video. And it was so funny. And Jonah was so funny in the video. And um, I'd never seen him before that. But yeah, was that like, was really before he had done much of anything. Yeah, right? 
he hadn't done anything really. Yeah, maybe a couple things, but you know, they were they were just out of high school basically. And I was like, that guy is so funny. And then he was there with Max that night, and I met him. And Jonah was very cold to me for some reason. And he's explained <laughs> it subsequently that he, when he's threatened by people, <laughs> he he gives them kind of the cold shoulder. So he didn't give me much at all. It was like a handshake with like no, no eye contact. Do you think he was he was jealous or something? I don't know. I, I guess because Max was speaking so highly of Arrested Development or something. He was like, who is this guy? And then another time I was at a table read for a movie that, and Jonah was kind of one of the guys at the table read who read kind of several parts, you know, several small parts. So he didn't even have like a character. And, but every time he read something, one of these bit parts, it was like he destroyed. It was so funny. And I was like, this is the funniest guy ever. And then um, that was it. I hadn't really ever seen him again until one day I got, you know, we were doing, I was cast in Superbad and we were trying to find the other guy. And I read with a lot of people and like, chemistry tests. And um, it was never really that good, you know, with anyone. And then I was like, huh, how are we ever going to find, you know, like someone great? And then one day I got a voicemail from Jonah. He was like, hey, Judd wanted me to call you because we're going to be in this movie together, you know? And that's how I found out he was the guy and it was going to be the two of us. And I think it's how I found out I officially had the part too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? That voicemail, I had it saved and I think it's on even a DVD, like a super bad oh, really? DVD, like in the special features or something. I remember giving them a bunch of my voicemails from Jonah. And so, yeah, that was very exciting to me though. I was like, oh, this is great. Like we're in such good shape with this guy, you know? Hey, so did you bring a condom for tonight? You brought a condom with you? Yeah, I figured I might as well, you know? I brought a little bottle of spermicidal lube, too. But you laughed in my face when I said I'd be having sex tonight. Yeah, that doesn't mean you shouldn't just always be prepared. You know, you didn't even bring a condom? No. No, I mean, that wasn't part of the plan. I can't believe you did this without consulting with me about it. Why are you talking about a plan? We've never discussed, like, any plan, but you keep saying we have a plan. I had, like, a general outline, you know? I was going to go down on her for, like, several hours, okay? She would love that. She'd be smitten by that. She'd go out with that. Or I'd dry hump the shit out of her leg. Okay, well, I just... I don't see the harm in bringing one little condom. And one little bottle of spermicidal lube? Yeah, one little bottle of spermicidal lube. Evan... That's psycho shit, man. It's not. It's like Charles Manson shit. What do you think Becca's gonna be psyched that you brought a bottle of lube? Oh, Evan, thank you for bringing that lube for my pussy. I never would have been able to handle your fucking four-inch dick inside my pussy without that gigantic bottle of lube. So yeah, that that year, the same year as Superbad, you know, you had uh, Juno come out, which was another you know huge movie, is nominated for uh, Best Picture, I believe. Um, you know, is that what, right? What, best picture is that not right was it (laughs) maybe i'm wrong is that just i wished it was nominated for best picture i don't think no i don't think it was not i don't think so i think it was maybe best screenplay best screenplay yeah and i think i think diablo cody won for yeah that's what i meant it won best screenplay yeah so yeah um so juno that same year in, in 2007 uh you know what what stands out from that experience from juno um we shot in vancouver and so all my memories of doing that movie, most of the time I was like on, on standby. So I was like sitting in my hotel room most of the time and walking around like very rainy Vancouver and um, playing music in my hotel room. And Jonah actually came and visited me in Vancouver when I was doing that movie and stayed with me. And we just, yeah, watched Larry Sanders show and walked around Vancouver and hung out <laughs> well, <laughs> while I was on standby. Oh, yeah. And my friend Mae Whitman, the actress Mae Whitman, was also in Vancouver at that time. And I remember seeing her and hanging out with her. And what else? I mean, okay, but actually shooting the movie. I mean, um, 
I don't know. It was just, it was fun. And Jason Reitman was great. I really loved the way he was working with us, working with actors. And um, yeah, that, yeah. I don't yeah, know. I mean, I mean, you, I mean, you made these two movies, you know, Superbad and Juno, and I think, you know, you, you couldn't have known how big they both would be, and then they both come out in the same year, um, you know, and that must have really kind of changed your crazy. Yeah, your profile actually, in the yeah. in the industry, yeah. um, you know, compared to something like Arrested Development, which was more of a cult hit that a lot of people loved, mm-hmm. but maybe it wasn't as totally. widely seen. So how did you deal with, you know, all of a sudden being that famous at, at such a young age? Well, the famous part was so weird. I didn't deal with that well. The famous part was like just, you know, really intense, especially because I was um, shooting a movie in New York by the time those movies came out. It was like around 2007 and I was shooting this movie, Nick and Nora. Yeah, which was another big movie. Yeah. Yeah, that came out, you know, probably the next year. And um, that was my first time ever living in New York. I was living in the East Village. It was a kind of a very intense place to live with that new level of exposure, actually. Probably would have been good. How how did it how did it affect your you know everyday life when you were living there? It was embarrassing more than anything. It was embarrassing because I would be hanging out with friends, walking down the street, and people were constantly shouting things at me and recognizing me and wanting some something or other. And I was just I was I felt embarrassed. It was like you know I it kind of made hanging out with friends difficult and not that much fun for me or for them. And uh, yeah, I kind of really bristled at it. You know, I mean, obviously it was great. Those movies were successful and and everything. So there was a great feeling with it. But yeah, all of the social challenges that suddenly arose were just were challenging. And especially living in New York in the East Village, you know, like that's kind of like the most insane place to be with (laughs) suddenly that new level of recognizability. So, yeah, I kind of freaked out a little bit. Yeah, it seemed like you maybe weren't that into being a, a celebrity or that was not your your goal. No, it wasn't because, I don't know, you know, I always really enjoyed that when Arrested Development was on, the very rare, you know, on the very rare occasion that someone would come up and say something to you, it was like, it was kind of great because they were like really into the show. You already had a certain shared language well, because they really appreciated that show, which made them a sort of very specific group of you know view viewership and sensibility and then but they, these movies had such a bigger net cast you know that like it could be anybody and the, the thing is to be honest not all people are great you know <laughs> <laughs> really and suddenly you have <laughs> and suddenly you have all kinds of people just coming up to you with no boundary especially because I was 19 I think if you kind of get famous and you're like my age now or you're like 40 or something you have your own sense of sort of, you know, personal boundaries that you're able to uphold. But I was just 19 and I felt so confused about sort of how to be graceful in those situations with those people, especially when you feel very, you know, very imposed upon and very just encroached upon and even physically, you know. And so, yeah, no, it was... Yeah, I, I, it took me a long time to kind of get my hands around that whole aspect of my life and, and and figure it out. Did it impact the types of projects that you wanted to do and and the direction that you maybe. wanted to go in your career? Maybe, maybe. Um, I've definitely kind of said no to a couple of things because I thought that's going to like change my life. And, you know, I like my life. Like, you know, after I've gotten my life to kind of a place that I like it. I don't really want to um, invite a whole, a whole, a whole world of weirdness 
you know, or, and if I do, I want to have a really good reason why I'm inviting that or allowing that world of weirdness in, you know, like it has to be a very compelling reason. What kind of things did you say no to? I don't know, you know, a couple movies that I, that would be big franchises or that kind of thing, you know, where it would just be like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, you walk down, I, I, like one thing that um, I never really consciously thought of this, but like I kind of have on reflection realized this, that one thing that's very stressful when you're really famous is teenagers. You know, like if you walk by like a high school just getting out and if there's a pack of kids, it's crazy. I mean, they, you <laughs> they, know, forget they really about don't have boundaries. boundaries. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, it's insane. They're like screaming and like you're in the jungle suddenly. And, you know, so I was like, you know, I don't know if there's a movie that's like made for kids. That's going to be a child movie. Good luck. I mean, like those Harry Potter people, I'm, I don't know how they, you know. Yeah, that's intense. Or the Twilight people. You know, the other thing is I was on a plane with the cast of Twilight, like right before that movie blew up. We were all for some reason on the same flight. I was sitting next to Robert Pattinson and uh, it was like right before their lives changed. And uh, you could feel that they sensed it was coming, you know, that, that it was like in the air, that this was going to be a life altering event for them. And they they all seemed really nervous about it too. Yeah, he's someone who I feel like moved away from the the franchise stuff, but now he's back. He's Batman, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, with time, you can like it. Just takes time. I think it's like it's a psychological curveball, and you need to like digest it and you know do your work on it a little bit. Yeah. Did you also at the same time feel like the you know the industry that Hollywood was trying to put you in a in a box of a certain type of character, and did you push back against that at all? I don't, I think I really felt that. I mean, I don't know. The projects that I, you know, did were things I was very excited about. Like, um, I was very excited to, that, that Edgar Wright, you know, wanted to work with me and cause I loved him. So it was, I don't know. I wasn't thinking about a box. I was thinking that's an amazing director and I want to work with him. One project that I really enjoyed seeing you play against type was actually when you played a version of yourself in This Is The End, which is another favorite of mine. Um, was that was that fun to uh, to get to play yourself in that movie and, and play yourself fun. in a very specific way? Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was fun because it's a fun, it's a fun atmosphere on that set and a fun, fun kind of just very playful way of working. Like, and, you know, they, they do work in that way where you kind of have to just uh, be very alive and inventive, and which is a challenge for an actor. I mean, you really can't show up on autopilot. You have to show up and you're basically kind of doing like live, real-time writing and improvising and inventing and reacting. And it's a lot of, you know, like work in a way, but it's it's fun. When you hit, you know, when you have a good take, it's like, it's very exciting. <laughs> Yeah, you have a lot of great moments in that movie. You have a, a super bad reunion, which is fun when you uh, when you blow coke in uh, in McLovin's face, <laughs> and you also have a great moment with Rihanna, which I, I mm -hmm. was curious how that came to be. Uh, whose idea was it for you to um, you know slap Rihanna's ass and her slap you back? It's in the it was in the script. I mean, it's pretty scripted in terms of the beats. She, I was really happy that she really hit me very hard. You know, did she? I don't know. Yeah, it looks like she does in the in the movie. Yeah. She definitely did. And, you know, I don't know, the fake slap thing is very fake looking. So at least with slaps, cool. it seems people really go for it in movies. Yeah. Yeah. Punches are a little different, but it was so crazy that Rihanna was on that set. Everybody was just, I think nobody knew how to behave around her. Yeah. She was just, <laughs> this giant star. And so funny that she was there at this weird hangout with all these weird people. Oh my God. If I don't fuck Michael Sarah tonight, I'm going to blow my brains out. What? Fucking pale, 110 pounds, hairless, probably has a huge cock, 
coked out of his mind. You can, you can do a lot better. You should. That's just trouble. So, Riri, how about you? Do you ever see a psychiatrist? Um. That's not cool. Don't touch that's my phone. Michael, that's not cool, man. Fuck up, Jason. We're playing a game, man. Say cheese, baby. Can I just say one memory real quick from, from This Is The End? Because I just it just came to me and it's like, Paul Rudd is just like the funniest person in the world. <laughs> Stupid. Um, <laughs> there's this moment in the movie, I think it's in the movie where like everything's going down and then he runs up to the house with this like giant like Jeroboam of champagne. You know that moment? <laughs> yeah. It's in the movie, right? So he like, <laughs> Paul's like thing was <laughs> to see how far he, back he could start for that moment because the thing is like running like ah running and so for one take he started like you know like two blocks away and did that running and screaming for that long where it lasted it was like a full 30 seconds to a minute of him running and screaming and us just standing there watching him yeah <laughs> that's so i don't funny. know if that translates but yeah you know, no i think they, like, they may have cut it down a little bit but uh yeah no they definitely cut it down. he was just doing it for our sake it was just so funny yeah he's a really funny guy so yeah, yeah, and then funny. and then there was a there was Molly's game, which you know felt like a, a new direction in your career, a more dramatic role. Um, was that something that you were excited to take on? Because it really did feel like a different kind of thing for you. That was cool. Yeah, I mean that was the thing where it just came to me. You know, there was an offer from Aaron Sorkin, and I was like, this is so cool. And uh, the script was great. I mean, it's so fun. Like you could really see everything reading his uh, scripts. I mean, it's, it felt like watching the movie reading the script. Yeah. Everyone talks about, you know, doing his dialogue is such a yeah. unique acting challenge. Was that, did you find right. that? You know what? I, I knew that that was like the reputation about him. And so I definitely showed up like very memorized. Um, you know, I wanted, I, but I found that he was kind of relaxed about it. You know, I thought it was going to be like word perfect. Like there was going to be someone on set whose job it was to like come knock you, knock some sense into you every time you like missed a apostrophe or something. But um, <clears throat> I don't know how you miss an apostrophe. <laughs> but um no it was he was really relaxed and actually he was very hands-off as a director i felt like he really just um trusts you to 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 be prepared and to show up and do it and um he's one of those directors i found who like you hardly have any conversation with him about what you're doing until you it's done and then he comes in and goes okay i think we have it what do you think and you go okay if you yeah. think so <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it was yeah, it was cool working with him. I think his script does a lot of the work for him, really. Yeah, yeah. maybe that, that helps, does, yeah. does it all in that phase where he's like, as long as we do this, it's going to be good. <laughs> you disapprove of me. It's not personal. It feels personal when you chat up every other guy at the game except me. When you stay late for a drink with JT, but never... Have you visited his Oscar? I think it's bolted on the hood of his car. It's noticeable when you go out of your way to demonstrate that you have no interest in me. You did the same thing to Dean. These guys want to play cards with me, not you. Be that as it may. You know who the biggest winner in this game is? It's you. You know who the second biggest winner is? Look. It's you. What are you taking home, 10,000 a night now? That is my business, literally. Between you, the dealers, and the servers, you're taking a lot of money out of this game. Not as much as I'm bringing to it. That 10,000 is 10,000 that doesn't go in my pocket. Again. My money. Your money is my money. And then, of course, there was, you know, the return of Rust Development uh, a few years back. Um, and I was curious what it was like for you to, to come back to that, especially because you, you joined the, the writer's room for the when it returned, right? Yeah. Which, well, was, actually, new, which yeah. was new for you compared to when you were on it originally. 
Yeah, I think I kind of wrote on the season that was in that we shot in 2012. You know, um, that was the first one back. Yeah, that's the first time I, I, I got got to do that. Um, yeah, that was amazing. That was an amazing experience being in there. Was it very was it very different? You know, sort of seeing it from the other side, and after having you know been Definitely. in it just as an actor. Well, very much so, but also that that season was like its own beast in terms of approach, you know, like yeah, it was very old, uh, so. complex. <laughs> yeah, and it was just like kind of one big thing where you know, like the old series, they used to do an episode a week, like we would shoot for five yeah, days, sort of traditional style, yeah, yeah, because they were airing, you know, just a few months out. We were kind of you had to keep that pace. You had to like you know hand over episodes. But this, uh, these last two seasons were were not that at all. It was more like you just shoot everything out. You know, you shoot all the content, and then Mitch goes and edits it for months and makes the episodes. So it was a big catch-all thing. So it was amorphous, you know, um, and that definitely affected the writing too. It wasn't like we would just sit around and produce a script. It was like solving problems all day long, and like you know, kind of just going here, then here, then here, and. It was insane, actually. It was. I was so glad to be the person not responsible for, like, you know, bringing this like unwieldy beast, you know, into into shape. Um, we just basically, basically, there would be Mitch in the room, or if Mitch wasn't in the room, it would be someone else functioning as, you know, like the head writer of the room, and everybody else just gets to think of dumb, funny ideas and dialogue. And that was my, that was my function. I never could be very helpful with figuring out the structural. <laughs> which there were many but it was great it was great to be on the other side of it and uh and then in terms of acting on it in these more recent seasons did you feel like you'd really evolved as an actor and what you were able to do and was it odd to kind of then be playing this same character who you were playing so long ago i don't know i mean the main thing i remember about acting on the show was it was challenging because a lot of times we were you know confused about what <laughs> The scene is that, you know, comes before or after the scene you're shooting and where you are in the story. Um, it was just confusing, you know, because there wasn't like a script that you could refer to, a, you know, a big master script. Those were being made as we shot. So there were a lot of questions all the time and, um, you know, a lot of just figuring out what, you know, what is connecting to what. Um, that's really the challenge that I remember uh, being an actor on that season. Now, I can't really, I don't know, remember any specific feeling about, you know, playing the character again. I mean, to me, it was, there was no, uh, to me, like what that means really playing that character is playing off of those people. I mean, that's kind of how I would even think of the approach to that show, you know, is it's so informed. I think I'm personally a very, uh, like very dependent actor. I think there are some actors who are very independent and they kind of just approach the work based on, you know, whatever they've figured out at home. And yeah, they kind of know what they're going to do going in. Yeah. And they, it doesn't really matter what everyone is doing around them, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm completely like dependent on who I'm in the scene with to, to bring it to life and find, find it with them and find what we're doing together. So yeah, with that, when I think of that show, I think of playing off of those people and those characters. Hey, what are you doing here? I'm, I'm on a visit. I'm visiting. My girlfriend lives here, Rebel. Wow, so you got, you're going to work it out with your girlfriend. Good for you. That's great that's, news. That's great that's to Rebel, see you again. Huh? Is, that a, is that a little gift for Rebel? 
I'm dating Rebel Alley. So there better be two rebels in here. Am I right? I'm dating Rebel Alley. <laughs> That'd be weird. Now, ironically, she did say that there was another guy, but that his name was George Harris. Harris. That's me. You're George Michael. No, but uh, yeah, but I use the name George Maharis when with women because I hate the name George Michael. I told you that. This is uh, this is weird. Are you not kidding Say, me? No. So oh, you're the son. other guy. I'm the other. Well, you're yeah. the other guy. Well, one of us. Did I not tell you that we were alike, exactly alike? This is just <laughs> horrifying. Too funny. So uh, we. We end the show with our segment, The First Laugh. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of uh, questions about firsts in your, in your career and your life about comedy and, uh, and see, what, see where we go. Okay. So going all the way back, uh, what's the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid? Something you remember growing up that you thought was really funny? I could just take a kind of educated guess because I can't remember the specific moment. But I used to love uh, Looney Tunes stuff like Bugs Bunny. I used to really love. And I still think it's really funny. So I think that that probably made me laugh. Um, and uh, and Ghostbusters, I, I loved Ghostbusters. But I think watching Ghostbusters as a kid, I don't know if I was like laughing very hard. I don't know if it's like a belly laughs movie. I think I was fascinated by it. Yeah, yeah, by I New agree York with that. And by you know the, the people and by the characters and just it was like fascinating. Um, and then like The Simpsons, I think once I discovered The Simpsons, it was like game over. The Simpsons kind of changed everything. Do you remember the first time you knew you were funny? No, I mean, I think, you know, I have an older sister who's like extremely funny. And uh, um, so I, you know, my whole like consciousness of my whole life is informed with her there. And um, I don't know, we were just like, it was, it was funny growing up, you know, I mean, I think all kids are funny. I think kids are funny. Um, they are. Yeah. <laughs> and our parents are funny too, I think. So we, I don't know, we, we just had, you know, it was a very goofy like household. My older sister is really very funny and ridiculous person. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you have, do you have an audition story from early in your career that, that stands out for either going particularly well or particularly not well? So many, I don't know. Um, particularly well. Oh yeah. I remember getting kind of like told off by this casting woman when I was like nine years old. (laughs) Um, this is like a kind of interesting story. Actually. Uh, There was this movie, I think it was called, I remember Africa or something like that. It was like four kids. I think it kind of, in my mind, it was going to be like a stand by me kind of vibe, like four kids kind of hanging out. And one of the kids was called Pee Wee. And that was the part I was auditioning for. And I was really nine years old. And, um, you know, my mom would help me prepare for auditions. We would like rehearse lines together and stuff. And um, my mom had this like inspiration. She's like, what if you, you know, do like a funny voice for this character, you know, for Pee Wee. His name's Pee Wee. Maybe it's fun to give him a funny voice. <laughs> I don't know why she got that involved. She doesn't normally, never normally got involved. Well, you, know, you were nine, so. Me. Yeah. <laughs> but she, yes, she got a wild hair up her ass that day and said, I'm going to give you a note here. And <laughs> I, did, I did this audition with a dumb voice. And then I get to the end of it. And then the casting woman who I wish I could remember her name, but I don't know who she was. I never auditioned for her again or before then it was the only audition i ever had with this woman in toronto but she goes so michael what do you like to do what do you like to do with your friends you know when you're hanging out and i was like and then in my regular voice i said oh you know we play tag and she goes i knew it i knew that wasn't your real voice why were you doing a funny voice you know acting is not about doing funny voices acting is about getting into the and she gave me this whole lecture i was like oh my god my mom told me to 
don't know. <laughs> I was just being like chewed out just on this little bench, just like yeah. humiliated. Oh my God. And, then, uh, and then my uncle took me to Planet Hollywood for dinner. He had driven me to that audition <laughs> for some reason. To make you feel better? Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So don't, do, did, yeah, don't do funny yeah. voice. That's the, that. Funny. And did you take that with you for the rest of your career? Yeah. I no never did that. Voices. Yeah. I just never took, never took anything my mom said into it. Yeah. That's, that's good. Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a, a story or a memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but wasn't funny at the time? Maybe it's that one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can, yeah, I can think of a thing but when I, again, was a little kid, um, and it, it was, uh, yeah, there was, a, I was on a TV show called, I was a sixth grade alien. And, uh, it was like a Canadian TV series with a bunch of kids and it was a great group and it was a great vibe. We were all friends and everything. And, um, there was like one episode where we were doing a talent show or something. This is a story about like, uh, under preparation being unprepared, which is kind of like a sweaty nightmare for a lot of people. You know, it was kind of like a real life nightmare come true where, there's part of one episode where we all, we all like perform in a talent show. And I had like a thing where I had to do like a song or something, something like that. And um, they had like given me, you know, on a CD, the song I was supposed to learn, you know, like study at home. And I was supposed to have it memorized, but I just never did it. I, just, like, <laughs> I, don't, know, I don't even remember like thinking about doing it. And then they're like, okay, we're shooting the scene with Michael now. And they put me up on the stage. Oh God. Yeah, and they're like, okay, sing the song. And I was just like frozen. And I remember like, they went action and I sat frozen for probably a full minute. <laughs> and then after a full minute, and I was just panicking, panicking, panicking. And then I, after a full minute, I went, how does the song go again? And the whole crew started laughing and it was like a big, you know, like they, you know, a big sweet moment. And I was relieved because in my mind, I was like, this is it. I've blown it. You know, it's over. So they started laughing. They were like, cut. Okay, moving on. We're not going to do that. You know, that's not, <laughs> yeah, that's not in the show. And I was relieved. And yeah, I can laugh about it now. But the terror of that moment. I mean, I don't know if you ever had a nightmare where you like had to get up and say a speech or something. You just didn't know what to say. Like, I just had nothing. I, I was like, suddenly I was in this situation. I didn't know how I ended up there where I was supposed to do something. And I had no concept of what to do. Yeah. But it's a good lesson to learn when you're, <laughs> when you're like, I haven't done any acting since college, but I still have nightmares that I'm on stage and, and forgot to learn the lines. It's like that feeling. I mean, I have done, you know, plays where every now and then you just, even though you've done it so many times already, you just kind of don't know what you're supposed to say. Yeah, and it's it, terrifying. It is that feeling. But at least then you have your, somebody on stage with you normally who can, you guys can scrap through it somehow. This was just me standing on stage, <laughs> not knowing what to do. But I was like nine years old, you know, so it's, I can definitely laugh about it and Maybe there was some, uh, some, something good came out of that, the shock that it gave me. Just Always be prepared, yeah. Do you have a story or memory about the uh, first time you met a comedy hero, someone you really looked up to in the comedy world and what it was like to meet them for the first time? Man, I have so many of those stories because I really, I feel like I've met almost all of my heroes. It's crazy when I think about all the people I've had a chance to meet that, you know, if I could have told my like younger self, you would meet that person one day, it would just be stunning and it, it is and I never get over that and I think honestly it's for me personally the greatest thing about like being in this industry that I you know had ambitions of being in when I was a kid and all the people that you know like worship growing up you, you get a chance to meet a lot of them but one specific one I don't know I mean Mel Brooks comes to mind right away because I got to meet him and uh it's crazy to meet him and uh just had a couple minutes meeting with him with my friend Daniel Kellison who was running this company Jash that I was part of and Mel Brooks worked on the Culver 
lot. He has his office on the Culver City lot. And that's where we were working. And Daniel was just like, why don't we just call, you know, see if we can go see Mel. And, and we did. And he just, he had us, you know, had us in his office and he signed a Mel Brooks <laughs> compilation DVD thing for us. And we had like some laughs with him and it was great. Yeah. He's incredible. Yeah. I mean, but there are so many, really, I like almost all of my heroes. I feel I've, I've met, you know? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and finally, I like to give guests a chance to shout out uh, something that's making them laugh right now. So what's the uh, what's the last piece of comedy that really made you laugh, whether it's something on TV or something you saw live or just anything that you've seen recently that really made you laugh? Well, I think, you know, I don't know. Whenever people ask me that lately, I say the David Wayne movie, They Came Together, which is a few years old at this point. I think that's like, for me, the funniest movie of the last <laughs> years. I just scream watching yeah. that movie. Un- but, underrated. I feel like yeah. underseen and then so, yeah. so funny. But um, there's also this like video of a guy stuck in a gutter on YouTube. I think it's called like NPC Crackhead. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that sounds funny already. You know what, man? It's it's just so addictively funny to me. It's this guy stuck in a sewer and this guy's filming him and the guy filming him is just so angry at him that he's stuck in the sewer. And yeah, I like have that whole thing memorized and I just like walk around all day reciting it. <laughs> just like it's in, it's under my skin for some reason. I don't know. That's just this particular week, you know, but uh, it's pretty funny. <laughs> well, uh, Thank you so much for doing this. You're so funny in, in everything that you do and in uh, in Life and Beth. You're really, really great. And um, yeah, I can't <laughs> wait for people to check it out. So Thanks, thank you so Thanks much for, for doing it. this. I'm glad yeah. you got a chance to watch it and that you dug it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I hey. hope you get to make more. Yeah. Thank you. That'd be great. Man. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thank you so much to Michael Sarah for being my guest on today's show. All 10 episodes of Life and Beth are available to stream now on Hulu. It's a really great show, so I hope you check it out. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.